as we discussed in our first study last Sunday, this tale of Jonah, it illustrates a foundational principle that you'll, interestingly enough, find constantly resurfacing in the New Testament and one that you'll never find in the Old. Under the Old Covenant, it was evident that God intended for the nation of Israel to be set apart from the world in order to remain an example unto the world. This was God's large purpose for Israel. And it was under this dynamic that God never commissioned missionary activity, whereby he specifically sent out Jewish representatives into foreign lands for the purposes of proselytizing or evangelizing. Instead, God's purpose for Israel was that they exist as a shining light, a people set apart in order to draw the nations to Jerusalem, to the to the temple to encounter the true and living God. And it's within this context that God's instruction for Jonah to leave Israel to go to Nineveh broke with every single old covenant norm. On a side note, it's one of the many reasons that I believe that Jonah wasn't ethnically Jewish, but was a Gentile who had converted at a young age. From the macro perspective of Scripture, this is what you should keep in mind. Jonah's unique calling presents him as a foreshadowing of Christians receiving the Great Commission to go into the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, in contrast to the Old Testament, the new covenant of grace presents the opposite dynamic as it did for Israel for the followers of Jesus. Instead of seeking to draw the nations to a geographical location, the temple, to encounter God. Christians are what? We're filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul even calls us that we're temples of the living God sent out into the world. But keep in mind, it is, in the new covenant model, a complete and total reversal of the old covenant. As opposed to one ethnic group, the Jews, being a beacon unto the world, the book of Acts describes individuals from all nations being filled with the light, the light of God, only to then be sent out by Jesus into the world for the purposes of shining that light into the darkness. It really is amazing to consider, but the story of Jonah illustrates the missional nature of the new covenant. Some 750 years before the birth of Jesus. You need to know, right from the beginning here, that it's not enough that we're called to be the recipients of God's love and grace. You and I, Christians, we have been called and commissioned by Jesus to arise and go out into the world in order to be a conduit of the very love and grace we've received. You see, believers are not called to be static we're called to be active. In Matthew chapter 28, we have recorded the Great Commission. We're told that Jesus came and spoke to his disciples and said, All authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always even to the end of the age, amen. This is our marching orders. And it's with that in mind that I want to 
start again by looking at Jonah's calling. Verse 1 of Jonah 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. As we noted last Sunday, the book of Jonah opens with the prophet facing a serious decision. Because of the wickedness of the Assyrians, because their wickedness had reached this exclamation point whereby it could no longer be allowed to continue unabated. God had to do something about it. We're told that the word of the Lord came to Jonah with a very specific set of commands, three in particular. First, Jonah was to arise. Then he was to go to Nineveh. And then finally, upon his arrival, he was to cry out against their wickedness. In Jonah 3, verse 4, the prophet will later deliver a very simple message to the Assyrians. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, from the context that we're given, it appears that the situation in the Assyrian capital of Nineveh had reached such a tipping point that God wanted Jonah to go and to issue to these wicked people an ultimatum. Either they repent of their sin, or they would face a certain judgment. It's interesting to me, and it's really another example of God's grace, that God would even care enough of these wicked Assyrians to provide them an option. That unlike Sodom and Gomorrah, he didn't just destroy them, but God in his love for these people, in spite of their wickedness, picked a prophet to send. It's amazing. Which then explains why Jonah is commanded to arise, go, and cry out. God loved these people. In the original language, this directive, arise. The word itself is so strong in the Hebrew, it's actually hostile. It's, 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 it's like you would kind of translate as get up. Or if you're a Falcons fan, rise up. That's what the word means. It's hostile. You see, the command itself intended to stir Jonah from a point of apathy to one of action. Get up, Jonah. Go. Move. Keep in mind, before this word came to Jonah, the prophet found himself in a wonderful place. The northern kingdom of Israel was being blessed. God's word was active. Jonah was right in the middle of all the action. He had prophesied of Israel's victory. His words had come true. Jonah was a rock star, man, in Israel. He was loved. He was appreciated by the people. They respected him. He even had the ear of the king. Ministry for Jonah was good. You see, the last thing Jonah wanted to do was leave Israel, especially for Nineveh. He was comfortable. Things were easy. Life was on cruise control. Yet what God was commanding him to do through everything in his life into chaos, the very command it placed his future into an uncertainty. You see, ultimately God's command here was challenging the lordship of Jonah's life. Was Jonah's service to God as a prophet absolute? Or was his servant contingent upon how it would benefit himself? Was he really all in? As we've already noted, God knew 
that what he was asking of Jonah would be met with an understandable measure of resistance, which was the foundational purpose of the command. Don't forget, the story in its essence, it's not about a fish, it's not even about Nineveh. It's about God and Jonah. See, aside from the fact that Jonah would possess a natural fear and going to this particular group of people with such a radical word, they were brutal. He would be justified to be scared. But God knew the very possibility of mission success, the Ninevites repenting and being saved, that even possibility would challenge Jonah to his very core. See, the idea that God would even consider demonstrating grace to the wicked Ninevites, it challenged the prophet on several levels. Beyond the spiritual prejudice driven by his religious moralism, the extreme nature of God's grace would challenge Jonah's racial bigotry, as well as the justifiable animus and hatred that he held towards the Ninevites. Yet you should also keep in mind that such a command at its core was designed to challenge the very essence of Jonah the prophet, his relationship with God. J. Allen Blair rightly observed that every believer is plagued constantly by the enemy of self. And Jonah was no exception. The decision to obey this command for Jonah to heed the words, to arise, to go, to be obedient. The command to obey this instruction, it would require of Jonah absolute surrender. Absolute. Jonah would have to submit his will to God's. He would have to submit his future to the sovereign purposes of God. Heading to Nineveh would require a measure of faith and trust that Jonah, at this point in his walk with God, had never had to experience. This would take him into uncharted territories. God's command. It left Jonah with a choice. He could lay aside his religious pride, repent of his racism, let go of his hurt, die to himself, in order that he could become the conduit of love and grace to the Ninevites God desired, or he could reject his mission, remain his own God, refuse to submit. Once again, before we look at Jonah's decision, and in light of the fact that this story illustrates the missional aspects of the new covenant we're under, it's important before we move forward that we just place this into our own context. Understand, there is a reason that we call it the Great Commission and not the Great Suggestion. Christians, you and I, we have not been saved by Jesus and liberated from sin to remain idle, but to be mobile. You and I, we've been saved to then be called, not kept comfortable. As Christians, our purpose isn't to congregate, but to go out into this world on particular mission. Before I continue, it's important we just take a minute to address a misguided idea that has not only come to dominate our modern, westernized Christian culture, but has ended up distorting 
the missional purpose of the new covenant established for every individual believer. Tragically, many Christians have come to falsely see their mission in this world as being church-centric as opposed to believer-driven. What I mean by that is that many have come to see the corporate church in place of the individual believer as being the vehicle by which we're to reach the lost and fulfill the great commission Jesus has given. Instead of Sunday church service being geared for the development of healthy believers, the purpose of the church gathering has become in our culture largely seen as similar, ironically, to God's purpose for Israel. To be a physical location whereby the lost come to encounter God. It's backwards, friend. Since the goal of the church gathering in this model is then to get unbelievers in the door, you'll find that every single part of the church service is crafted with that intention. Instead of teaching God's word out of fear that such concepts like sin and judgment might be a turnoff for the unbeliever, the focus of the service becomes fostering an inviting, fun environment that the unbelieving world around us will find attractive. For examples of this, look no further than what we call the seeker-friendly church, which, on a side note, is completely unfair branding. For if you don't adhere to their model, it by default implies that you have no interest in being friendly to a seeker. Kind of cornered the market. You see, the truth is that instead of the seeker-friendly church, it should be called the seeker-focused church. In actuality, such models, without naming names, even boast this, quote, of being church for the unchurched. And while I'm not advocating this morning that the church gathering can't be or shouldn't be in appropriate moments, evangelistic, should be. Or that church shouldn't be the kind of place that's welcoming to the weary, to the brokenhearted. Sadly, what we find, though, in the seeker-friendly or focused model is an old covenant mentality that fosters two unintended consequences. First, such a notion that it is the purpose of the church gathering to evangelize, this is what it does. It naturally downplays the responsibility of the individual Christian from going out into the world on mission. Instead of the church gathering crafted with the goal of equipping believers to go out and reach the lost world around them, the Christian mission tragically morphs into supporting the church gathering so that it's better equipped and effective at reaching the lost. We've seen this model dominate the church in recent years. You see, the focus becomes building an attractive building for unbelievers to come to, as opposed to being an effective place believers are equipped and sent from. You catch that? And the ultimate irony is that such a strategy, why I believe well-intentioned, is simply inconsistent with the new covenant model Jesus established. The second reason that such a perspective that it's the purpose of the church to evangelize, the reason it's dangerous, is because it misconstrues 
the actual purpose of the church gathered. Now, I imagine that some of you are sitting there, if you're tracking with me, and this is what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, Zach, what about the Great Commission that you just read, right? Like, isn't the church, hasn't the church been called to reach the lost? The answer, no, it hasn't. This is what so many people miss. The Great Commission was not given to the institutional church, but to individual Christians. Like seriously, go back and look at, at Acts. Jesus issued the Great Commission to 120 followers on the Mount of Olives before his ascension, 10 days before the church was even born. Beyond this, if you examine the history and early formation of the church as recorded in the book of Acts, it will become evident that the church gathering existed not as a mechanism to shine a light unto the world. The church gathering existed to be a time that focused on equipping and encouraging believers to take the light inside of them into the darkness. And it accomplished this by teaching God's word. On a side note, you'll, you'll never find an example of an altar call occurring during a church gathering anywhere in the book of Acts. Or for that matter, You'll never find in the book of Acts the emphasis of the institutional church being outreach-oriented, reaching an unbelieving community. The reality is every example of evangelism in Acts centers upon a Christian being equipped at church, then going out into the world to tell people about Jesus. Evangelism in the New Covenant model is an individual mission. Once again, it's the, it's the difference between the New Covenant and the Old Testament models. Jesus formed his church for the purpose of equipping and sending out you to reach the lost. Not to be an attractive place the lost can gather to encounter God. If you believe that your job is to support the evangelistic efforts of the church gathering. You have it sorely backwards. Instead, you support the facilitating of a church gathering because it exists to effectively equip you and encourage you to go out those doors and fulfill the evangelistic mission that Jesus gave you, that he called you to. Keep in mind, this is why we call the church, we have a, a phrase for the church gathering. You know what we call it on Sunday mornings? We call it a church service. It's a service to the church. Aimed at what? Equipping you to go out and fulfill the mission Jesus called you to. You know, if we're honest, people like the Old Testament model because it's easier. If you see the church, you support having massive altar calls, you know what it tends to do? It tends to make you feel better about not evangelizing yourself. It makes you feel good. And I don't want to sugarcoat it or look beyond the obvious. It's true. Going out into the world to share the gospel with the lost, that is challenging. It's tough. Like stepping out in such a way, it can be uncertain, sometimes scary. We love our comfort. And sharing our faith requires a measure of sacrifice. 
Honestly, this is one of the reasons the seeker-focused church is so vibrant and flush with cash. The truth is that people prefer to support someone else doing the job Jesus has called them to do because it's easier. And it doesn't require you to step outside your comfort zone. Sadly, church leaders, they even prefer a seeker-focused dynamic. Here's why. It's easier to grow numerically. As opposed to relying on believers to go out and evangelize the lost, it's easier to just encourage members to bring unsaved friends to church to hear the gospel. And while I'm not advocating that it's wrong to bring a seeker to church, you should. Here's the problem with the quote, you bring them and I'll save them mentality. Aside from the fact believers end up being challenged to get saved every single week. You ever been to a church you felt that way? Like, man, I'm a Christian. Why do I, can I, can I move beyond that? Can we, like, but the model's not for that. It's to reach lost people. So Christians are like, I got saved like 30 times this year. I feel good about it. But here's, but here's the other thing. Such a, a, a model, it enables a Christian, and this is what makes it dangerous to me. It enables a Christian to do the very minimum and still feel like they did their part. Sure, the results are better because more people are getting saved. But since it's happening the wrong way, it creates a culture of apathetic Christians. Let me give you an example to illustrate my point. What, what this does, is it's like a parent who does their children's homework for them. Yes, the child makes better grades. I hope you can do third grade math. They make better grades than what they would on their own. The results are great, but here's the problem. Your kid's still a moron because you're doing their homework for them. You're robbing them of an opportunity to step outside of their comfort zone, to work through something, to be challenged in a way. Doing the job for the child, no matter how hard, robs the kid of an opportunity to learn, to grow, and to what? To mature. The truth, I'm going to say a couple things that are not going to sit well, but it's kind of what I do. The truth is that inviting the lost to church is not fulfilling the Great Commission. It's not. Bringing a friend to church should come after you've shared the gospel with them. Where were you told someone, a friend or a coworker, the amazing grace of God? Where you just shared a story of how you were lost, but you're found. How you were mired in guilt and condemnation, but you're set free, you're liberated. It's just a story, yours. You should be able to share it. I was recently asked why we never give an altar call at Calvary 316. My answer was simple. That's not my purpose as your pastor. And it isn't the purpose of our church gathering or our church service. 
Now, though I personally possess a deep passion to reach the lost world around me with the gospel, and if you know me at all, you know I'm actively involved in individual mission in my world. But that's my job as a believer. That's not the job of the church. The church gathering from a biblical angle should be believer-focused, not seeker-focused. If for no other reason than this, that's how Jesus created her to be. You want to try to improve on what Jesus established? Think that's wise? Well, how do you expect the church to grow, Zach? I believe in one simple model. It's worked for 2,000 years. Healthy sheep reproduce. For our church to grow, in addition to you guys out there making more babies, because that is for the first couple years how we did grow the church. Aside from this, you know how our church will grow? It will grow when you and me answer the call, the call of Jesus. Embrace our mission and go into our world with the gospel. And then people get saved. And you want to see them grow and equipped. You know the place for that, right? Now, I don't mean to put a guilt trip on anyone. I really don't. But I want you to be honest for a minute. When was the last time you told someone about Jesus? When was the last time you did that? Or at a minimum, told your story. Like, when was the last time you led someone in a prayer to receive Jesus? Have you ever? You see, it's not my job to be a light in your world. It's your job. And I don't want to give you an easy way out by doing it for you. Christian, Jesus comes to you and I. And he comes with the exact command he gave Jonah. Arise! Move out of apathy to action. Arise! Rise up! And go! And you know, that command, it challenges us the same way it did Jonah, doesn't it? You see, as we turn our attention to Jonah's response, let me just personalize it. As we move forward, personalize it all. Okay, you have been saved to be sent on mission. That's the truth. You can accept it or reject it, but the calling is there. So, what is your Nineveh? To whom is God sending you? Or have you fallen into a trap of seeing ministry as the thing your pastor does? Be honest. Who is God sending you to reach? Is your mission a workplace? A specific coworker? A boss? Is your Nineveh a neighbor or an entire neighborhood? A family member? A book club? A team? A school? A PTA? HOA? Gym? Another country for that matter? A foreign one like New York or California? Like what Nineveh? Has God called you and sent you to bring his message of grace to? And if you don't know, friend, pray that God would make that clear. And keep in mind, 
like we see with Jonah, the purpose of mission is much greater than reaching an individual target. God calls people to reach people, as we talked about last Sunday, because he's wanting to challenge us in profound ways, right? Is God calling you to show grace to someone who's hurt you so that in doing that, you'll experience his love and his grace in a deeper, more profound way? Maybe God is calling you to lay aside a moral prejudice by befriending a gay couple in your neighborhood. Instead of sitting back and judging, maybe God's calling you to love, to befriend. Or maybe it's the single lady who had an abortion. Instead of judging her, maybe God's calling you to love her and to minister to her or the coworker going through divorce. Maybe God is calling you to these type of people so that you can understand, apart from God's grace, you're no better than they are. Is Jesus calling you to the homeless, to work in the projects because he's wanting to work out of your heart some type of racial bias? Never forget this. Receiving God's love and grace, though incredibly powerful in its own right, is not nearly as transformative as demonstrating his love and grace to people you don't believe deserve it, like God had called Jonah to. Consider, the word of the Lord has come to you for the same reason it came to Jonah. God is calling you to arise and to go to a specific place, to a particular people, to preach the good news. The message you've been given to your world is no different than what Jonah was given to Nineveh. While sin will result in a certain judgment, God desires repentance and salvation much more. Go with that message. Verse 3. I think I got enough out of the first two verses. Sadly, we won't get to verse 4. But Jonah, now we'll see his response here. Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down there to go with them to Tarshish. Tarshish. We're just going to call it Tar from here on or shish, from the presence of the Lord. You know, most, most stories build to a tragedy. If you're a fan of literary works, they, they, they build to a fall. The tale of Jonah wastes no time getting there. Jonah has a decision to make. Sadly, he chooses very poorly. Sure, though it's obvious why Jonah decides not to make the 500-mile trek north to Nineveh. What's weird about this? Think about it for a moment. Okay, I get it. I know why Jonah's not going north. But have you ever stepped back and thought the decision to then head 2,000 miles west to the other end of the planet is kind of bizarre? Like the very fact he chooses to flee to Tar. It's a twist in the story, admittedly. Like what demands Jonah go anywhere? Like couldn't he have just stayed in Israel? 
Like, why does Jonah feel the inescapable need to move when he doesn't have to? I think there are two reasons Jonah decides to flee to Tar. First, Jonah's compulsion to flee, it manifested, most interestingly, as a natural reaction to the word of the Lord. In Isaiah 55, God gives us a, a, a truth of his word. And it's that his word never returns void. It goes out and it returns. It does something, always. Like this means that the power contained in the word of God will always spawn some kind of action. It's interesting that God's word always yields what it intends in the amoral natural world. In Genesis 1, God said, let there be light. And what? There was light. He commanded the waters to divide. They divided accordingly. We even see creation submit to the words of Jesus. Jesus verbally rebuked the storm on the Sea of Galilee, and it immediately obeyed him. Totally submission. Total submission. But man is different. Because unlike the rest of creation, God has given us a free will to make our own choices. Now understand, this doesn't mean that our free will provides an immunity to the power of God's word. Quite the contrary. You see, the only difference between moral man and amoral creation is that why all of nature automatically submits to the intentions of God's word, we as people can largely dictate the reaction of God's word through our free will decisions. To this point, J. Allen Blair, he makes this observation about Jonah's reaction to the word of the Lord. He writes, quote, Whenever the word of God comes to a soul, it disturbs that soul until there is a response. No man is ever the same after the word of the Lord comes upon him. Either we respond to the voice of God to do his blessed and holy will, or we turn from him and go in the way of our flesh. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. And what did it do? It commanded him to arise and go to Nineveh. And yet, because he wasn't willing to go to Nineveh, God's word wouldn't allow him to idly remain in Israel. Jonah is like, ah, I don't want to go to Nineveh. I can't stay here. I got to go somewhere. He runs the opposite direction. This is the response to him rejecting the word of God. Greg Laurie, he said, quote, there are only two roads in life. One road leads to Nineveh. The other road leads to Tarshish. One road is the will of God. The other is disobedience to his will. There's only two roads. Because Jonah chose not to go to Nineveh, the other path took him very, very far away. You know, this is the danger in attending a church. You know, it's dangerous for you to come here. Like, it's dangerous to come to a church that faithfully teaches God's word. Here's why. It'll never return void. It will yield a response in your life. It's the truth. No, it won't. It just did. If you accept his word and you submit to it, God will work in your life in amazing ways. However, 
If you reject his word, you know what that will do? It will drive you from his presence. It always yields a response. It doesn't return void. This is one of the reasons that we tend to be very patient when it's brought to our attention that someone in the church is living in sin. Okay. Hey, do you know so-and-so, they're living together and they're not married? Oh, that's interesting. I don't have to deal with it. Because one of two things always happens. If they're coming here every Sunday, they either decide we got to get married because we're living in sin. We can't be doing this anymore. It's what God's word does. Like we just can't do it. Or they leave because it's pricked their conscience. We don't have to do anything about it. Guess what? God does something about it through his word. The second reason that Jonah fled to Tarshish it's, well, it's evident from our text. Look back. But Jonah arose to flee. Why? He wanted to flee from the presence of the Lord. Now, to his credit, Jonah at least understood his refusal to submit to the will of God. His refusal to answer the call did carry with it a profound effect on his relationship with the Lord. Like Jonah knew that the status quo changed. Like he knew that his rebellion, that his rejection of God's command to go to Nineveh would have a serious consequence in his own life. Jonah knew there was no way he could have it both ways. There's no way he could refuse God's command and remain in fellowship with the Lord. It couldn't happen. Now keep in mind, the idea behind Jonah fleeing from the presence of the Lord, it doesn't mean that he honestly believed he could escape God. He's a prophet. He knows that God is omnipresent, that God is everywhere. Instead, the idea behind this phrase is that Jonah was making a willful decision to break fellowship with the Lord. Like in the Hebrew, the word we have presence, it can be translated face, that he, he wanted to flee from the face of the Lord. It's, it's, it's really radical, but what this means is that Jonah found the very notion that God would forgive the Ninevites if they repented so appalling that he no longer wants to be associated with God. He doesn't argue with the Lord, does he? He doesn't lobby God to reconsider. Jonah mounts no defense. The way the scene is set is that Jonah has now learned in verses 1 and 2 something about God he can no longer tolerate. Jonah heads to Tarshish because he doesn't want to be in Israel. Leaving for the other side of the world was Jonah's ways of breaking ties. He is, in verse 3, renouncing his religion. He's rejecting his God. He's departing from his people. He is resigning from the position of prophet. The extreme nature of God's grace was simply more than Jonah could handle. What God commanded commanded, said of God, what it said of God was so disturbing that Jonah's like, I don't want anything to do with you, God, anymore. Jonah is choosing to hate God if the only other option included loving the Assyrians. It's provocative. But Jonah is willing to be eternally damned if it meant Nineveh would be destroyed. You know, I know in, in light of the harshness of this idea that, that what I'm saying or what I'm actually about to say about Jonah it might, it might come across strange. 
But there's an aspect to Jonah I, I can at least respect. Just being honest. He's filled with hate. It's terrible. It's a bad decision, but I get it. I can understand it. See, Jonah knew he had to be consistent. As it pertained to God, it, it was either or, never both and. Jonah knew he was either all in or he was all the way out. Jonah knew that there was no gray area. You know, it's sad that Jonah refused to submit to the will of God. It's tragic he resisted God's call. It's even offensive, his hatred for the Ninevites, that it ran so deep he would rather reject the very grace he had been given if it meant he didn't have to demonstrate that grace to someone else. And yet, of all the things you can say of Jonah, there's one thing you can't say of him. You can't call Jonah a hypocrite. You can't. Personally, I'm convinced that the worst thing Jonah could have done after rejecting the call of God was remain a prophet in Israel. I think that would have had worse effects than him running. In such a scenario, Jonah, if he had remained, he would have been a hypocrite, right? He would have been a hypocrite. Remaining in Israel, it wouldn't have changed the reality that his heart had left. It's just his feet didn't follow. He was very far away from the presence of the Lord. Please understand, there is only one person that God can't reach, and it's the hypocrite. And here's why. If you aren't willing to be honest, then how can the truth ever set you free? I believe the reason that God, as we'll see next Sunday, pursues Jonah boils down to the fact that Jonah's willing to be honest. He's even willing to accept the consequences. What was good for Jonah was the fact that his feet did take him where his heart wanted to go, but catch this, there was still a loving and gracious God right hot on his tail. In closing, there's one more point I want to make. And it relates to an idea we introduced last Sunday as it pertains to Jesus being a greater Jonah. Not, not my words, Jesus's. I've mentioned this before, but Jonah's hatred for the Assyrians was in some ways justified. They were deplorable. They were wicked. They were vile. It's likely their, their barbarity had even hurt Jonah personally. As a kid living in an area subject to random attacks, Jonah had seen firsthand the savage nature of the Ninevites. Men filleted, decapitated, women raped and mutilated. Jonah refused to go to Nineveh because deep down he wanted them to be judged. He wanted them to get what they deserve. Jonah craved justice. He longed for vengeance. This is why the very possibility that God would instead grant mercy and demonstrate grace was more than he could stomach. Ultimately, Jonah rejected God because he believed God's grace, it wasn't just or fair. And if we're honest, though we can sympathize to a measure with, with Jonah's perspective, you know, Jesus can as well. Think about it. Consider that God's command of Jesus, as well as the essence of his message, almost identical to Jonah. 
Jesus was sent to earth with a message of what? Repentance in place of judgment, just as Jonah had been called to go to Nineveh. Furthermore, if you think about it, Jesus, he could have used all the same justifications that Jonah had used in refusing his mission to earth, couldn't he? Jesus could be like, humanity's deplorable. They're wicked, they're vile. Man, they're capable of all kinds of wickedness. Jesus would have been just if he had desired judgment, vengeance, justice. Honestly, it's what fallen sinful man deserves. And yet, Jesus is a greater Jonah. Because while Jonah rejected his calling, Jesus willingly accepted his. Unlike the attitude we see in Jonah, Jesus had a deeper longing to see men saved and judged. Jesus preferred the demonstration of God's grace in place of his wrath. Like Jonah, Jesus had a decision to make. Jesus could have allowed his hurt like Jonah to taint his perspective, but he didn't. God said to Jesus as he commanded Jonah, arise and go. And what makes Jesus a greater, what makes Jesus greater than Jonah is that he accepted his call and he came. While Jonah refused to lay aside his wicked prejudices, Jesus willingly laid aside his heavenly glory to come to us. While Jonah was consumed with his hurt and his hate, Jesus was more interested, instead of harboring these things, demonstrating God's love and forgiveness. While Jonah ran from the will of God, Jesus willingly submitted himself to, to the will of his father, even to the point of death. While Jonah was unwilling to let go of his moral pride, Jesus humbly endured the humiliation of a Roman cross. He became sin, who knew no sin for us. While Jonah wanted to see the Ninevites judged by God, Jesus desired and desires that all sinful man might be saved. Jonah refused his calling. Jesus accepted his. Jonah ran to Joppa. Jesus hurried to Jerusalem. Jonah boarded a boat. Jesus was nailed to a cross. Jonah rejected his purpose. Jesus died to fulfill his. Jonah resisted grace, and it took him down a difficult path. Jesus demonstrated grace, and it changed the world forever. Christian, if you need a motivation to embrace your mission, <laughs> look beyond Jonah and see Jesus. There is a lost world around you in desperate need of the grace that you've experienced, that you know of. The world doesn't need more Jonahs resisting their heavenly calling looking their religious noses down on all these wicked people. What the world needs are Christians willing to go out and be a conduit of His grace and love. Always remember, while the person closing their fist to God's grace will find it impossible to share anything with the world around them other than hate, it is the open hand to God's grace that will be more than willing to then share that grace with those around them. That is what you have been called to. You can resist grace and it will yield effects or you can, re or you can accept it and be an instrument of change. Father, Lord, we just let that settle.